Welcome to Affect Autism. This week we are speaking with Ray Leeper from the Rebecca School in Manhattan, which is a DIR, a Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model School. And welcome, Ray. Thank you so much for having me. And what it, tell everyone what your role is at the Rebecca School. I am the educational supervisor at the Rebecca School, um, and I have been around since we opened in 2006. Wow. So yes. you've been there from the start. Yes. Um, <laughs> I've, I've worn many hats and had several job titles over the few years, but yes, I've been the educational supervisor here for going on seven years. Oh, well, it's great to speak with you then. Um, yes. So correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Dr. Gil Tippy and Dr. Stanley Greenspan were the ones who created the Rebecca School. Is yes, that along with Tina McCourt, our director? Um, so Tina and Gil really collaborated with Dr. Greenspan to kind of dream up what would it look like to bring DIR into a school setting. And do you know is the Rebecca School the first DIR school? I think it is. <laughs> I don't know if someone else is out there. Um, I think one of the, the beautiful things about DIR schools is oftentimes they can be quite small. So, you know, I often will speak to families or parents or practitioners who have a school, you know, in a church basement or in, you know, a level of their house. Uh, I think we're probably one of the first, if not the first, schools to really have like a brick and mortar building. Um, and we started with, uh, you know, 40, 45 kids. So we started sort of larger than most schools and then have grown, um, you know, exponentially since. So I think in terms of, I don't think we're a traditional school in the, in a lot of ways, but in terms of having, you know, a school building with a structure and a, and a business plan and a relationship with the Board of Ed and those kinds of things. I think we are one of probably the first official DIR schools in, in the country, at least. So let's talk a, a little bit about the Rebecca School. It's in the heart of Manhattan, mm -hmm. and um, it is in a high-rise, yes. so there are many floors, and, and you service children from 3 to 21, so yes. children to young adults. Yes. And how many students does the school currently have? We have 138 students currently, and we're opening up another classroom in November. Um, so we are expanding, yes. Wow. Yeah. And what does the setup of the school look like? Uh, is it classrooms? Are there one-on-one -on -one instruction for certain kids? How are the kids grouped? Yeah. So we... We have classroom settings for all students. Our classrooms range in number of students from seven to 10 children, depending on um, sort of the needs and appropriateness of the group. Um, we are roughly grouped by age. You know, we're not gonna have like a four-year-old in a class with a 15-year-old. Um, but for us, we really think about what is the appropriate developmental makeup for each individual student. Um, we really try to um, have, you know, mixed groupings for students. We're not the kind of school that has, 
you know, a classroom that's quote unquote, one classroom is quote unquote academic and another classroom sort of quote unquote pre-academic or anything like that, because we think that it's really important for all students to have the opportunity to be a leader and also a follower, depending on the skill set, and that we all learn so much from each other when we are, you know, pushed to communicate in different ways. That being said, we want to make sure that students have appropriate peers, um, and so that every kid has a kid that they can truly be friends with. Um, and another thing that's that's a thing that we, we think quite thoughtfully about is um, having girls have another female girl in their class because as as we know um autism is uh sort of disproportionately male um and so what that often means for some of our of our female students is that they're often placed in classrooms where they're the only girl um that's not to say that they're going to automatically be friends with the other girl in the class but um it's it's at least nice to have that option to have a female peer um, and we also think very thoughtfully about the sensory needs of our students. Um, so we want to think about the balance of the room and think about, um, you know, if we have eight students, how can we have a, a eight students that can um, share the space together in a meaningful and productive way? So if we have eight kids that really are intense sensory seekers, that might be very challenging for them to feel safe and secure in the classroom. So we have the flexibility because we do have quite a few number of classrooms at each age level to really create a balance in every classroom. That's great. And my understanding is you have um, an interdisciplinary team? Yes. So you have, um, how does that work? Do kids yeah. go out for occupational therapy and then come back or how yeah. does... So we have occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy, music therapy, counseling, and social work support. We also have adaptive physical education, and we have an art teacher. Um, and we also have a music therapist who pushes into the classroom and does group music as well. So, <laughs> and we're lucky that we're rich in resources in that way. But, uh, you know, as the advocate for classrooms, it's really important for me that the classrooms feel like a safe and secure home for our students and that um, we want to try to integrate therapies as much as we can into the classroom environment. Um, we absolutely have pullouts uh, when it's appropriate, but we first and foremost want to think about how do we help that student have the most productive and most integrated day that they can. So. Um, I think when we first began the Rebecca School, because we were trying to take, you know, floor time is a model that was sort of developed one-on-one -on -one in sort of quiet therapeutic settings. So it did take some sort of translating to figure out, okay, how do you follow eight leads? You know, like right. if we're thinking about really embracing kids' individual differences, what about if their individual differences conflict with each other? So what if one of them really wants the lights out off and one of them really wants the lights on, right? A very simple example such as that. Um, and I think one big sort of turning point for us as a school is to really move beyond the clinic model so that kids are not being sort of pulled out and they get this great sensory support. We have fantastic OTs that do really interesting um, integrative sensory work. And then they're put back into a classroom and sort of dropped off and then get immediately 
dysregulated, right? And so that kind of defeats the purpose of this of this beautiful work. And so what we've really done over the years is thinking about how to not only integrate therapists into the classroom in meaningful ways, but also to train TAs and teachers so that I think about teachers as sort of, obviously we're experts in, in education, but it's almost like the lazy Susan approach where you sort of have all the disciplines and the tools and not to say that a teacher is ever going to be the same as an occupational therapist, but they have this, some tools in their toolkit to work from. So if they're doing a um, reading lesson, the OT might collaborate with the teacher during that lesson and be in the room, or the OT is consulted with the class. And so the teacher and the TAs know what kind of seating the students need, which kids need to go to the sensory gym right before Maybe if we're doing, let's say, bear hunt, we're going to incorporate a bunch of thinking goes to school movements as part of the reading activity so that I really like to think about the classroom as an integrated therapy space. It's not just like this is where we, quote unquote, do our academics and then this is where we do our therapy, that it's really we want our kids to be integrating those things together all day long. Okay, um, a couple of questions about what you said. What is bear hunt and what is thinking goes to school? Yeah, uh, bear hunt is, uh, we're going on a bear hunt. It's a popular children's book. Uh, I believe it's by Michael Rosen. And it has this beautiful sort of rhythmic, um, you know, sing-song pattern where uh, the family goes on a hunt to find a bear and they go through the water and the woods and the forest. And um, so there is opportunity to do a lot of movement and acting out as well as you know there's a part where they go through squishy mud and so we might make like a sensory bin and where some of those pieces out again like really blurring the lines between for me when things are cooking the way they should you go into a classroom and you're not really sure whose job is what that that for me is really that's like the the goal um Again, it's not that we want speech therapists to be OTs and teachers to be PTs, but that I think we all, a truly interdisciplinary team um, speaks the same language. And we all have our area of expertise that we can go back to, but that we have a shared common goal of understanding that when we look at a kid as a whole kid in all the different domains together, they're going to do better. And... Um, Thinking Goes to yep. School, right, yep. is um, is a program developed by Dr. Harry Wax, uh, who is actually a, a good friend of Dr. Greenspan. Um, and it's a series of visual spatial activities that are aimed to really help integrate the vision and the body together. So what we find is that a lot of our students, a lot of their academic uh, challenges have are very tied into how they're sort of brain and eyes process their environment, print, etc. right? So if a kid is having some challenges picking up sight words, there could be a real issue with them functionally using their eyes to scan print. Um, so we work very closely with the occupational therapists and the, and the physical therapists who do a lot of like sort of crossing the midline types of activities, visual tracking activities, adapted kind of yoga moves, all of these things aimed at really rewiring the way in which kids are using their eyes and brains together. So it's, it's not just, okay, you know, 
how do I see in terms of 2020 vision? It's how am I processing the visual space around me and how am I understanding my own body and space? Uh, those are the kinds of things we're thinking about when we work on thinking this to school. So it sounds like um, kids are mostly in the classroom, but they sometimes get pulled out, but all of these different therapies are sort of integrated into the day, um, and it's individualized for each child. Like you said, some, some children might need to go to a sensory gym and get some body movement before they have a certain type of lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is the ratio of adult staff to children? And you mentioned TAs. Are you also mm-hmm. sort of a teaching environment where student teachers come and help out? So our model is one head teacher, and then um, we, so we are two-to-one model, so it's two students to one adult. We're not one-to-one um, in the classroom, but when you start to add in the therapists and support staff, uh, you know, we do have a significant amount of adults, but our, our, our program was designed to not be a one-to-one teaching model. Uh, we really wanted to move away from that one-to-one model because you know, the motto of our school is learning through relationships. And we wanted kids to really understand that learning is about um, collaborating with others. And that we found that um, the one-on-one model sort of comes from oftentimes sort of a clinic setting and oftentimes sort of an ABA setting as well. And that some of our kids could do really well in a quiet environment with one adult. But then the second that they're with a peer or in a, in a group, hard time integrating those skills across environments. So we want kids to have the most, to have learning environments that are, that are you know, soothing and, and predictable. But also, you know, our class tends to be, our classes tend to be raucous sometimes and our hallways are busy and kids are playing chase and um, it's also New York City, so <laughs> maybe our, uh, our thresholds are a little bit um, higher anyway. But we want this to be a rich and, and affect-driven environment, and sometimes that means that it's a little bit like sort of uh, louder and a little sort of more um, robust than kind of these one-to-one um, sort of cubicle-like settings. Um, so our classrooms are one-head teacher, and then, you know, if there's eight students in the class, there'll be three TAs. If there's nine students in the class, there'll be four TAs. We do have a handful of students that do have a one-to-one para. Oftentimes, that's somebody, um, a student that might require more hands-on support for sort of medical um, needs. Or, you know, we do have some kids that just being in the classroom can just be very, very challenging for them in general. Um, and so they, they need that more intensive level of support so that para or that one-to-one is there to help support them out of the classroom in kind of like a quiet room kind of setting or in the gym or in the hallway and then you know with the goal to integrate them with the class as much as as possible. And are the TAs employees of the school or are they students from university that come in? Yeah the TAs are employees of our school. We do have a lot of students from you know either teaching occupational therapy, speech therapy that come in and out um, and that's been a wonderful way to, you know, teach other people about floor time and as well as a potential for hiring people. I mean, it's really the ideal situation to, to train people for six months and then hopefully they, they, you know, they can grow into the position if there's one available for them here. 
Um, so yes, we do have sort of a, we take our, one of our missions is really that of, of teaching and learning. Um, every day, that, uh, every week on Fridays, the students leave at 1230, one o'clock. Um, and then we have Friday afternoons for staff training. So it, it's a, we, we understand that what we're doing is challenging and that some of our students have, you know, incredibly complex sensory learning, emotional profiles. And we really want to honor, um, the space that we're all learning and growing together. And we want to make sure there's that time and space to do that. So I want to hear a little bit more about the staff training that happens on a weekly basis, Mm -hmm. but also, um, how are the logistics of just simple drop-off and pick-up in the heart of Manhattan? Oh, yes. <laughs> and um, what do kids do Friday afternoons? Yes. Um, so drop-off and pick-up here, students do come on buses for the most part. Um, <clears throat> students in New York typically are not bus students. So uh, a typical like New York kid will often... Um, get dropped off by their parent and in the morning, you know, by foot or, um, older students will often ride the subways on their own. So most school buses in New York are, um, students who have an IEP or busing as part of their IEP. Um, so we, most of our students come on buses. Um, every day is (laughs) with a sense of humor and calmness because sometimes it can be quite tricky. Um, but yeah, students start to arrive and we sort of slowly bring them off the bus um, so that there's never too many kids, hopefully in the lobby at one time. We are a vertical campus. Um, so we have, we're not on all floors, but we our building is 12 floors and the 12th, the top floor is a rooftop playground with very high fencing. <laughs> but uh, in New York City, a lot of schools have like rooftop uh, playgrounds, but uh, we started a, a very um, slightly unpopular with the students <laughs> plan this year to really take the stairs a lot more to shut down, you know, some of the elevator waiting. Um, and also it's really good for them and all of us, our cardio systems and to get that input in the stairs. So, uh, you know, that's that's helpful to kind of slow down some of the saying. I'm sorry, you asked another question. Oh, Friday afternoons. Um, Friday afternoons, kids do a variety of different things. Um, Some kids go home. um, Some kids go to after school programs. We collaborate. So none of the programs are run out of this, like they're not part of the school, but we sort of contract with private um, sort of after school programs and they will have periodically things in the school. So there's like a yoga thing that happens um, some afternoons. There's a soccer club that happens. Um, A lot of grandmas (laughs) pick up their kids on Fridays. Um, Yeah. So it's, it's, it sort of depends on the student. And what is the staff training that happens on Fridays? Yeah. So, um, Every week is a little different. This year we started a really exciting initiative um, where we have collaborated with um, an institute that's doing a series of 10 weeks on mindfulness training with the staff. Um, And so that's an hour every Friday. Um, 
we find that this work, like a lot of us experience, is wonderful and beautiful and we all feel really lucky to do it. It also can be really exhausting and really emotional. And I think especially for, you know, well, for really for all of us, but for some people who are like newer to the field, um, it can really be a lot to sort of hold by the end of the week. Um, so we have, for several years now have had a series of what we call process groups where various mental health professionals that work in the building run groups. And some of them are sort of talk groups. Some of them are music therapy groups. Some of them are art groups. And um, Gil Tippy, our clinical director, uh, has been running a mindfulness group for a number of years. And that has slowly become more and more popular. I think just as people end their week having a practice to let go and to, um, and to also, you know, so much of floor time is just being present, right? Like not having this huge agenda, but really tuning in to who this kid is or who this group of kids is in this exact moment, being present with them. I, I just, you know, we started this phone call a little bit late, you know, 25 minute conversation with a group because we were eating lunch together. A lot of us like to eat lunch with the kids. So, you know, I was eating lunch with them and I had rice in my lunch and four other kids had rice in their lunches. And it started this beautiful conversation about, honestly, sort of about like multicultural families and who eats rice and how do you cook rice and what kind of rice do you eat and, and that every family cooks it a little bit differently. What does that mean, right? So gone in with a, my own agenda, that wouldn't have happened, right? So... For us, being mindfully present, being available, being open to where the kids are is really crucial for us. And we feel like mindfulness is a really important tool. So we've been doing that on, uh, we'll be doing that for the next um, few Fridays. On Wednesday afternoons for an hour, we do a full school case conference with Dr. Tippy, who runs it. Um, when we first opened the school, Dr. Greenspan would run them. We called them Greenspans. Uh, we still call them Greenspans. Um, so we sort of uh, talk about a particular student. The family might come in and go over the student's milestones and the team presents. So that's Wednesday. Um, Tuesday afternoons, we meet for an hour in teams and talk about students. And then Friday afternoons, we'll have, we've been doing this mindfulness training, but we also have a an hour long something else, some other kind of training. So um, oftentimes it might be focused on, you know, problems, shared problem solving, how to promote capacities for. Another week it might be the occupational therapist presenting on how to integrate more sensory strategies into your sessions and classrooms. So it really, it, it sort of rotates like what our topics are. And are some of those YouTube videos on Dr. Tippy's YouTube channel from those yes. staff, <laughs> staff yeah. trainings? Yeah, recognize the padding of our gym in the background. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah. And talk a little bit about the parent involvement in your school, because sure. you mentioned that the parents are there when you do case studies about the yeah. children and review uh, how the children are doing and the parents are actually there. So yeah. how do you involve the, the parents and, and are the parents really aware of the DIR model and about floor time? Yeah. You know, when, I think first and foremost, the way that we begin is that we really see parents as collaborators. That's really important to us. Um, 
I surely know that it's a humbling experience. Um, you know, we're really here. We're like sprinters, but parents are really there for the marathon. So we want to collaborate with parents and we know that parents really are the experts of their own children. Um, and so we have a series of parent trainings, um, and trainings to me is kind of the wrong word for it in some ways, because yes, we're training them in floor time, but it's also about like, you tell us about your kid too. How, what, what, in what ways do you find joy? What are the things that you love to do at home? The teachers, um, do home visits with families at the beginning of the year with the social workers. And we have parents fill out what I call a passion profile for their student, or they just share with us sort of what do you guys like to do as a family? What are, what are some of um, the things that your kid loves? What, tell us a funny story. So we just, be, um, you know, in what ways can we really capture this kid's, you know, gleam in the eye? Um, and parents are really the ones that know, know it the best. Um, I think parents come to us with a variety of different knowledge bases about DIR. Some of them come because they're like, I want DIR, I love floor time, I've read all of Greenspan's books, and I feel very committed to it. Others, you know, come to us because they know that we have a very specific um, therapeutic program, and they feel like their student really needs more support than, than a more traditional setting. Um, so we sort of have the full range of things, um, and really our job is to help um, parents to understand what our goals are, but also to really integrate what their goals are as well into, into their kids' programs. So yes, we have, um, we have staff that do parent trainings continually. Um, once parents have gone through some basic DIR trainings, we have, you know, a pretty much an open door policy with parents where they can come and spend time in the classroom with their students. Um, you know, we want it to be at a time that's functional for the classroom. And, but, you know, we want parents to feel welcome into classrooms. Um, and uh, we love it when, when families send us videos from home and we send videos from school about what we're doing and, and working on together. And also from a curricular level, we want to encourage families to share things that are important for them in their homes and their home cultures. And so we'll have parents sometimes come in and share, you know, like cooking activity that they do at home. Or um, we had one of our staff members, actually, her father is a police officer and we have a student that's very passionate about the NYPD. Um, so he came in and spoke with this student. It was like this kid's like, you know, sort of peak experience. Um, so we want, we want it to be a collaboration because um, I think it's, it's really important that parents feel invited in and they don't feel like we're these experts kind of telling them what to do because that just is, first of all, it's just false. It's just not true. Like they're going to know their own child better than we ever will. Um, it's just that we have a different set of tools and that's our goal is to kind of share, share those tools with parents so that they have they have more options um, for how to help support their children at home. That sounds fantastic. Um, and just for, for it to be so welcoming to families must, must be such a relief for the parents to know that their children are safe and, and yeah. taken care of. Um, 
we did a blog at Affect Autism with a podcast with Dr. Tippy a few weeks ago um, called Foundation Academics. Mm-hmm. And um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the programming at the school. So sure. um, certainly parents are always concerned about their children being on track with their, you know, the age that they are. They, they should be on track with their academics. But Dr. Tippy told us how important it is to build that early developmental uh, foundation, the early capacities that the DIR model um, talks about, the D for development. How does the school incorporate academics and mm-hmm. those early foundational capacities? Yeah. For us, it's really important that we think about all of the elements that go into, quote unquote, being ready for academics. So um, I think that there are a lot of assumptions about children at certain ages, right? It's like, you're nine, so now you're ready for X. You're ready for division and, you know, multi-paragraph writing or whatever. And for us, we want to think about, um, are you thinking? Are you thinking? Are you communicating? And are you able to negotiate and be in an environment with other people? That's first and foremost. So we do, some of the things that we do look a lot like any other school in terms of sitting in a group and reading stories and discussing things together. Um, I think what's a lot of things that are sort of underlying that, that might not seem like quote unquote academics are things like obstacle courses, sensory diets, um, our lunch program where kids are either cooking their own lunch or at least setting the table, washing dishes, all those things, which seem like, okay, those are kind of ADL skills or, But actually, there's a ton of sequencing involved in all of those kinds of activities. And what I want for my students is, what I find is that a lot of kids are fantastic at relying on their memories, and they have incredible visual memories. And that's a real skill, and we want to really support that. However, you cannot rely on your memory alone. That will not get you through. So for me, it's about deepening. It's not just like, okay, next skill, next grade, next. It's do you actually understand what this concept is? So a good example of what we might do here is um, our literacy program is heavily influenced by fairy tales. Um, We use a lot of both like sort of traditional, um, you know, Three Little Pigs and Three Billy Goats Gruff. But we also do things like I would consider some of like the Mo Willems books to be kind of like fairy tale like. Um, Bear Hunt is another favorite one. And for some of our older students, it might be something like Robin Hood or or Jack and the Beanstalk, right? So you take something like that, and for some of our students, they can read text at like a sixth grade level. But then when you ask them, well, why did they do that? You know, why, why was that important? That's really hard for them. So oftentimes what we'll do is that we'll work on texts that are the print is below, quote unquote, their reading level but comprehension is far above it. So that we want to think very thoughtfully about which part of their sort of skill set are we taxing at what point so that we don't max them out on all of the things. So if I really want to design a lesson where I'm having a complex conversation with them about good and evil and right and wrong and these sort of gray area questions that I think as a country we're really struggling with, right, in a really sort of grand level, you can have that conversation about three little pigs, Right. So you can talk about like, is the wolf bad? 
well, what do you think? And like, well, wolves eat pigs. What does that mean for them? And why did they put that pot of water there? What do you think they were thinking? So all of these conceptions about trickery, deception, and perspective taking, which fundamentally is, is really like a universal challenge for, for most of our students, um, you can play those out in safe spaces like fairy tales. Um, so that's a good example, I think, of the ways in which we are using, you know, literacy, read aloud, acting things out, readers theater. Um, some of our kids will create like play play versions of their own characters. Like we've done Sonic and the Beanstalk, and, and you know they adapt the fairy tales to incorporate their. But also, so at like a very base level, it's about not just answering what happened, but why did it happen? Why is that important? Why do you think that character said that? When they told that secret, they closed the door. Why? What do, what do you think? What do you think that was about? Right? Because ultimately, I want my students to understand their worlds. That's what I think my students are most at risk for: are being really amazing at um, compensating, but kind of being a little left out of the conversation. And I want them to be active participants. So how do you inspire the transition in a child who's clueless when you say, why did they do that? Um, you know, what do you think they were thinking? Mm-hmm. What is it that that is done over and over again that helps yeah. the child learn that isn't uh, repetitive memory-based? Right, right. I think affect. You know, affect is the real key. So we might um, act it out with the adults. The kids think that's hilarious, especially if you tape it because they're like, this is crazy. You guys are here after school. Like, <laughs> like what? Um, you know, there's these like adults in silly costumes or whatever, but you know, really like repeating things over and over and not because of memory, but, but one of the beauties of literacy is that literacy pages don't change. That can be a bad thing, right? If you just keep reading the same books in the same way. But if you want to think about comprehension, it, it's really, you know, for kids who can get very lost socially, they can work out some of these things in a book because it's not going to change. Whereas if their friend says something and they misunderstood it and then it's over, right? Mm-hmm. And it's hard as an adult, you can try to slow it down and bring it back, but it's kind of hard to recreate some of those like misconnections for kids. And what I find is that when kids start to get some of those concepts, like someone might not always say what they mean right? Like that's a really hard concept, but it's really essential. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for our teenagers, right? Is that I, I don't want them to be taken advantage of. So I want to have explicit conversation conversations about deception. And there's ways to do that at a lot of different developmental stages. Um, I remember one of my teachers had this really hilarious sort of, sort of curriculum, I would say, or lessons about sort of white lies and she would do things like put a pack of gum on the table and like you know the teacher one of the adults would leave the room and she'd take a piece and be like okay don't tell them you know and like sort of setting up these situations where kids are stuck in this sort of moral gray area where you have to really kind of figure out and there's no really right answer right there's not a there's not a right answer like I guess you are lying right if you say don't take it but these are, the, these are the things I think our kids really need to think about, and they need sort of more explicit 
um, I wouldn't even say lessons, but really like learning environments where they're immersed in these situations where people can help unpack some of the complex social dynamics of, of, you know, their relationships. Sorry, just dropped uh, something here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And I mean, I can see a whole other blog post about what you said um, working on deception at all different developmental levels. I think our listeners would love to see what that looks like um, <laughs> another time. Um, I know that Dr. Tippy had told the story when I heard him speak once um, that some of the older kids might have a project they're going to do and they'll plan it out mm -hmm. for you know a few weeks even yes. and we're going to go to the yes. store and we're going to get these supplies and the day finally comes and they all go outside and they just stand there and the teacher yeah. waits until someone says aren't we going oh oh right, right. and then you go to the corner right. and the lights red and then green and then yellow and then red and then green and then yellow aren't yeah. we going to cross the street oh oh right so right. um I know um, our time is uh, winding up here, but can you talk a little bit about how doing that kind of playing yeah. dumb and having the kids come up with what's going to happen helps this developmental process? Yeah. Well, again, I think sometimes it, it's really important the intention in which you go into those kinds of activities as an adult, because I think there's a way that you can do it where it's um, not respectful, right? Where you're just kind of like, will wait, you know, that sort of condescending, mm -hmm. um, annoyed, annoyed sort of tone. That's really, really different from like, what do you want to do? You know, and what our students are, are really overprompted, all of them at all developmental stages and all ages um, and I think that comes from a deep love from all the people around them. But what that ends up doing is that it, it sort of teaches kids they can't do it, right? It sort of, and it also sort of sets the tone that like, well, if I just wait long enough, someone will solve this problem for me. So for us, again, sort of going back to that mindfulness piece, it's like we're not in a rush. We will just take the time. So if you guys want to make pancakes, that's a great idea. We'll make pancakes. But I'm not going to go get every single ingredient, print out a recipe, and put it on the table. I might do that for certain kids that need more support, right? I'm not just going to stand there with my hands up and <laughs> give no scaffolding. Um, maybe I'll get the ingredients the first time they do it, right, or whatever. But ultimately, the goal is how do you, how do you go from having an idea to communicating that idea in the space of a relationship with a trusted person and then execute it to the end. And kids need lots and lots and lots and lots of practice of that. Um, so for me, it's like they're highly capable people. I know they are. And it's just about allowing them the time and space to figure those pieces out and, and knowing as an adult the just right challenge. There are times when you're going to, kind of step in and help them be successful because you know they kind of need a win and you just don't want the whole world to feel hard for them but there are also times when it's like you can do this and we and we'll wait and support you and figure out how this didn't work I keep coming back to a story of a, of a student who I'm still in touch with he's he's fantastic he's 22 and doing great um 
when he was much younger, when he was maybe 15, he used to come to school on his own on the subway. And um, there was one day, New York City subways are, you know, often (laughs) not running the way they should be, especially this past summer. Um, Here late working, it was probably an hour later, and he came back to the building. It had been an hour. And we were like, what are you doing? And he was like, well, the train's down. And he just stood there for an hour. Wow. (laughs) You know, and like he didn't know, he didn't, and he had a cell phone. He didn't use it. Like, this is a kid who like went to a fairly typical high school before he came to our school, right? So in a lot of ways, I think people would not have expected him to need that level of support. And I think that was a real wake-up call for us that like, he was completely independent if everything went exactly the way it was supposed to go. But the second something sort of unexpected popped up, he didn't really have a lot of tools. So that's something that is never really very far from my mind in terms of how do we help in any developmental stage. And I think this can happen at all stages. It's not just kids on the subway. It's really, okay, you're hungry. Okay. Then what? Where's your lunchbox or where's the snack or I'm not just going to get everything and put it out for you. Right. Um, There are ways to do it at all ages and stages to help kids be as autonomous as they can. That's great. And, and like, um, I remember seeing a video with Dr. Greenspan where he said, you know, imagine, and this was a totally different context, but, you know, imagine something happening this way. So let's use the example of you doing something for a child a million times versus over the course of a few years, inspiring the child to help do it for themselves a million times, what's going to be the result at the end of those few years? And how is the brain going to develop differently because of those experiences? So, um, yeah, that's great. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today. Um, One last question, which may or may not be that interesting, but who is Rebecca? (laughs) Rebecca is um, our the person that helped to open Rebecca's school so one of our investors it was his grandmother so it was named after her yeah all right I think I did hear that story before but um, I thought it might be an interesting uh, thing to include for our listeners (laughs) yes all right well thank you so much Ray Leeper who is the educational director Supervisor. Supervisor at the Rebecca School in Manhattan, a de- developmental individual differences relationship-based model school. And you have been listening to Affect Autism, and the podcast um, is available, but also a blog if you want some links to the Rebecca School to learn more about it. Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you so much.